Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to the Antler Up Podcast, brought to you by Tethered, the world's best saddle hunting equipment, and we have a great show for you all today. On this week's episode, I was joined by Penn State Adjunct Professor of Wildlife Ecology Leader, PA Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit, Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach. This was a great conversation with Dwayne about some of his findings on the Deer Forest study related to deer movement. We get into a variety of other topics associated with his findings over the years researching whitetails. And kicking this episode off, Dwayne discusses where this study is currently at and where it is actually going. The study originated 10 years ago and has a few more years until they are really finished. It was interesting to hear Dwayne share how it has evolved over the years with technology that really has helped them a ton with their findings. Dwayne answers listener questions and elaborates on some uh, myths whitetail hunters either swear by or not. He also dives into some of the major factors that cause deer movement and the burning question of where deer go when that pressure rises. So tune in and hear what Dwayne and his team have found over the last decade in the deer forest study and what Dwayne has observed since the early 2000s researching whitetails. So check it out. Thank you again, everybody, for all of your continued support. If you like what you hear, go leave that five-star review, whether it's on iTunes or on Spotify. It really means a lot to me. So thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next week. Antler up. Tether is a team of saddle hunting fanatics with a passionate addiction to whitetail hunting. Designing and engineering products to be a more efficient and confident hunter, Tether produces the most mobile, stealthy, and safest elevated hunting gear on the planet. Built by saddle hunters for the saddle hunter. Head over to tethernation.com to see for yourself what exactly I'm talking about. And before we dive into this week's episode, I have some really exciting news for you. If you've been eyeing any Exodus products for a while now, then you're in for a real treat. In celebration of their eighth year anniversary of trailblazing the trail camera marketplace, Exodus is now offering an exclusive campaign for you guys. You'll save 25% off the entire Exodus website. With a deal this great, Exodus will be offering these savings for the first 300 Exodus renders as well as the 300 rivals. So the good news, though, is if you miss out on these savings, you can lock in 25% off the entire site until June 12th while supplies last. All you have to do is use code AU at checkout to unlock your savings. In the case you need to be a little bit more familiar with what Exodus really has to offer, I'm about to share some of their key attributes. 
flagship model of their render is powered by their Verizon 4G LTE technology, boosts lightning fast transmission times, making it the fastest in the industry. Plus, it's incredibly user-friendly and dependable, and it ensures it's going to work flawlessly when it matters most. You can also save $125 with purchasing the Exodus Render Security Bundle with code AU. And if you're looking for that budget-friendly, Personally, it's my favorite camera. It's amazing. It's super awesome. Uh, and it takes amazing pictures. And the quality and functionality of it is just as simple as render. Then check out the Rival. With, with our exclusive code, AU, you can grab this sucker for under $140. Backed by Exodus's renowned five-year no BS warranty. This new camera is simple, reliable, and dollar for dollar is the best camera on the market. So take advantage of these limited savings and remember you'll always be backed by their five-year warranty. They stand behind their products. On top of that, they offer that five-year theft and damage warranty, a peace of mind. And let's remember their best-in-class customer service to solve any issues or hiccups that arise. So use code AU at checkout over at exodusoutdoorgear.com. What's going on, everybody? We are live and on the other line, I'm joined by adjunct professor of wildlife ecology leader, PA Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit, Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach from Penn State University. Dwayne, thank you so much for taking the time out and, and coming on with me this evening. Well, happy to be here. This should be fun. This is, ex I'm extremely excited. Uh, number one, obviously being a professor at Penn State, I'm a graduate of, of Penn State uh, University. It is, uh, I believe, I bleed blue and white, you could say, uh, for obviously Penn State, but I'm also a diehard Yankees fan, so it runs in, I guess it runs in my in my soul, you could say, but I'm ecstatic to have you on. A lot of people, a lot of listeners, as of recently, were reaching out saying they would love to hear someone from the scientific side of things, and again, I look no further than my alma mater. Having you on, Dwayne, is, is a true honor and, and privilege, and I'm looking forward to hearing, hearing you speak and, and answer some questions that we have tonight. Well, I'm happy to be here and, uh, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Well, let's kind of get into certain things. Um, right now, I want to say you're probably close to a decade, if not a decade already, with the Deer 4 study going on. And I know from one of the previous episodes that I've listened to you on from the NDA podcast, I, I think if I recalled correctly, you said you, there's a couple more years left on this study you know, where are we at, as, or where should I say, where are you and, and your team at as far as this study goes right now? Yeah, um, we began this research project in 2013, but actually I'd like to back up a little bit and point out that I've been doing deer research starting just around 2000 was the first project we started with a really big fawn study. Um, and all my deer research in Pennsylvania has been in conjunction with the Game Commission. And they've been really awesome to work with because we've approached all of our research saying, okay, we need to manage deer. Um, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. Um, what do we, what's the most important thing to know? And we've always focused our research on on getting the answer to what we really need to know. And we progressed through a fawn study, then we looked at um, uh, buck harvest rates and survival and dispersal, especially related to antler point restrictions. We've looked at um, uh, female harvest rates as it relates to public and private land. 
Um, and then the game commission, uh, you know, is one of the few states in the country that actually uses um, forest uh, conditions in when in in helping them make deer management decisions. And so they use data that the U.S. Forest Service collects and assess, um, you know, forest conditions and how deer could potentially be affecting that. And so they they use that information in their whole decision matrix in terms of how they go through and make recommendations for to the commissioners in terms of deer harvest. And so, so to get back to your original question, in 2013, we had done all these research projects and we said, you know, we're using Forest Service data to and trying to say, okay, assuming that these conditions are being affected by deer, but do we really know that? And so is there a better way to assess forest conditions um, that we could better assess how deer are having an influence so that we can make better deer management decisions? And at the same time, the Bureau of Forestry stepped in and said, hey, we, our mandate is to manage our state forests and deer potentially have a big impact and we'd like to know more as well. And so in 2013, we began this project um, funded by both the Game Commission and the Bureau of Forestry. And it's been ongoing. And right now it will be going on through 2026. And this, this project, I've always said, um, really should be called the Forest Deer Study because really we're more interested in what's going on with the forest and how deer and a couple other factors influence influence our forest conditions. Um, but of course, you know, deer, the charismatic megavertebrate, and so, and it rolls off the tongue a lot better to say <laughs> deer forest study. So, so that's why this project is going on. Um, and it's been going on since 2013 because vegetation changes a heck of a lot slower than deer. Um, deer on an annual cycle and there's reproductions, but, you know, if you think about it, you know, a, a cherry tree drops a seed and that seed may not be a tree for 60, 80 years, um, before it's in the overstory producing more seeds to create more cherry seedlings. So, uh, vegetation changes really slowly. And so for us to assess how deer might influence vegetation, we've had to have a really long-term project, um, which I, I just have to, you know, thank the Game Commission and the Bureau of Forestry for doing that. So where we stand now is, like you said, we've, we have almost um, a decade worth of data. Um, we've got, we've learned a lot about deer um, more, and I call it more serendipitous because, you know, the focus is on monitoring vegetation and responses, but we've also had to monitor the deer and with the technology we have these days um, with GPS collars and such, um, you know, we've learned a whole lot of things that we really even didn't set out to learn those things. <laughs> it's just we have the data now that we've never had. Um, you know, in my career, 
um, to answer some of those questions. So we are, um, we have students looking at um, factors that influence uh, some of the early plants that, uh, that pop up in the spring in the forest, like the trilliums and Indian cucumbers and Canada Mayflower, which may seem unimportant, but for white-tailed deer, especially females that are about ready to give birth or are lactating, it's extremely important food. So we'd like to know where do they, where do those plants occur and why? So we have a student looking at that. We also have a student looking at uh, plant communities, uh, understory in our forests. What's the understory plant community? And how is that related to deer herbivory and other conditions like soils and competing vegetation? Um, we have another student who is focusing primarily on, on soils and how, um, you know, like the bedrock geology influences soil conditions and how that influences plant communities, which ultimately affect the food that's available for deer. And uh, this coming fall, we have a new student starting up who will be focused on um, looking at how we estimate deer populations and developing some models that will give us um, better estimates of deer abundance. So I've rambled on here for quite a few minutes. Um, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah. And what's really cool about this whole study thus far, like you said, for a whole decade, a lot, I'm sure even, and you could even, I would like to maybe have you elaborate on a little bit, but like, so that's the current state. How has it evolved, especially from a technology standpoint? Like you said, you have all these now students almost in a subcategory looking at different things to help you at that end road. And like you said, in the 2026 year, you know, how has that, how has the study really evolved and from the things that you've learned and what you're learning as you go? Yeah, two different ways. The first one, if you just wanted to talk about deer would be, um, would be the technology that is basically due to cell phones. Um, you know, the wild, there's not a lot of money to be made in the wildlife field. But um, there's lots of money to be made with cell phones, and they've devised little handheld devices that can track everywhere you can go. And that technology has allowed um, these companies that make uh, collars for deer to use that technology. Um, they basic so our deer basically wear GPS units and they collect locations, and then they send that information to satellites, and I and my students can basically sit at our computers and almost get locations of deer in real time. Not quite, but pretty darn close. So that technology um, has opened up a lot in terms of questions or things we can learn about how deer move. Uh, we can follow these deer 24-7. Uh, uh, we can get locations. If we catch a deer in February, because we catch our deer January through April, 
is when we catch them and put radio collars on them. And if we catch one in February, we can we can get a location every hour into the next summer before the batteries die. Um, and so that really provides a lot of insights into deer behavior. Um, and the other thing I would add is um, the one thing we didn't realize when we started this project was we knew they were important, but we didn't realize how important, and that is um, soil conditions. Um, you know, everyone thinks about deer, about how many are there, should there be more, should there be less, but all those deer depend on the habitat and um, their ability to reproduce um, depends on the quality of the habitat and the quality of the food that's out there. And early on in the study, we realized that we needed way more information on soils. And um, we've been trying to do catch up on that since the beginning. In fact, right now, this summer, we're probably finally going to catch up and get all the data that we need on soils. Because believe it or not, um, there's very little known on forest soil conditions. We know lots and lots of information about ag lands. You know, so in the valleys in Pennsylvania, we have all our soils mapped out. We know what's what everywhere. But when you go up on the ridges around here, we really do not know a whole lot. So I, I would say those are the two things um, uh, that have either changed this, pro that have, yeah, basically have changed the focus of this project. Excellent. Now here's like a kind of up-to-date question, just kind of going off of everything. You know, we recently had a really cold spell <laughs> here in May and, you know, over the years, I'm sure you've been able to look at and, you know, past history when we've had like that, that frost that we had a, this past week, the, the, have you noticed anything in the past where that has made an impact on, on certain, um, you know, plants come, come fall for, for deer and, and some, some food? Um, yeah, I, I suppose it can. Um, it's, it's really difficult because now, um, you know, probably the biggest factor would be mass production and acorns. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, um, the wildlife profession has been trying to predict acorn production and its effect on wildlife for decades. And the bottom line is that it's almost random. Um, you know, you've got, you've got the white oaks and the red oaks and how they set seed. Um, you know, one type of oak set seed the previous year. One is the current year. Um, you know, I can't say what our spring has had um, and what effect it's going to have. It's it's really, you might as well just flip a coin. <laughs> um, it, you know, basically, come September, we'll know what it is. You know, it is what it is. The Game Commission um, and actually a whole host of states along the eastern seaboard um, have a protocol for um, monitoring mast production because mast is really important 
to many different wildlife species. And you can't predict how much mast you're going to have, but if you know how much mast there is, you know it influences a lot of things. Like if we have a big mast year, you know the fall turkey harvest is going to go down. Um, if we have a big mast year, we know um, deer and bear are going to go into the winter in a lot better condition. Um, unfortunately, you just can't predict it. And if you're preparing for summer shooting right now, getting ready for the hunting season, and you are in need of a new arrow, then check out the Exodus MMT Arrow, tailored built to your specific setup. Go to their builder online, get precision built arrows, and experience the most consistent and dependable arrow available. All you have to do is go to exodusoutdoorgear.com, click on the, the arrows, put in all your specs, and you are going to be able to get the arrow built for your knees. If you have any questions, just give the guys a call. They'll be more than happy to help you out. Again, this savings going to start May 19th until June 12th, where you'll get $70 off a dozen of MMT arrows just by using code AU. So check it out over at exodusoutdoorgear.com while supplies last. So when you talked about the soil, and I've heard you speak about it before, like how really it's it's the soil... Uh, and age, and then it goes into the genetics when it comes to antler growth and everything. And when you look at what you just said, going into the winter for some of these these whitetail, especially bucks, if they're going into the winter healthier, and the last couple of winters, I would say certain parts of the state, it's been pretty mild. Um, does that give them a leg up coming, coming into, say, this upcoming spring's growing season and, and next year? Um, it can. Um, you know, bucks, uh, you know, they're, they go into winter with almost no energy reserves. Um, you know, they bulk up as much as they can before the rut starts in late October. And those guys are going 24 seven for a month (laughs) and they lose so much weight. So yeah, mild winter and, um, you know, and a lot of mast can really help them out. But I'd also add that um, Pennsylvania is probably the one place in the country where this is, that's probably the least of our problems because, like my colleagues and I have talked about it, Pennsylvania is in the sweet spot. Um, We don't have... In the past, we haven't had many of the diseases that they have further south. We never get a really harsh winter. Like if you were in northern New York or Vermont um, or, you know, anywhere in, in northern New England, the winters down here do not compare. So we're really in a sweet spot. So, you know, compared to what, you know, if you ask that to a question to a biologist in Vermont, you get a very different answer than you would to a biologist in Pennsylvania because we just have extremely high reproductive rates. We have low winter mortality. Um, you know, it's it's not high in my list of concerns for white-tailed deer. Interesting. Well, I like that. Well, what I would like to transition to here, Dwayne, is talking about, and I think it's, I, I would I, from reading you and following your blog and listening to you, you know, one of your bread and butter is the is obviously the deer movement. And with that, I guess let's kind of kick things off with what are some of the 
you know, maybe to, to begin this discussion, you know, what, what are some of the key deer movement patterns that you've noticed either from like a more mature buck to a younger buck or however you see fit that you want to answer that. So like those key factors that is causing uh, the deer movement and, and the patterns of, of, of that relationship because of that. Yeah, well, there's different ways we can attack this question. I mean, one would be with respect to hunting and the hunting season. You know, one is, you know, overall in terms of, um, you know, seasonal patterns and that sort of thing. So where do you want to start? Well, because we talked for two hours. On this. So I would say, well, that's that's phenomenal. <laughs> let's let's kind of start it to the um, that I guess let's kind of bring it into like that August time frame, right? Because I know a lot of people know by now that, you know, the, that summer range is going to change slightly. Um, and for some, it's going to change uh, a, a lot dramatically depending on the area and the deer. But let's kind of pick it up, I guess, from that August time frame, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, um, so let's say you've got a game camera in your backyard or on wherever you hunt or whatever and you know by august those antlers you know because by you know by mid or end of july those antlers are set in terms of size and so you're following the this buck or multiple bucks on your game cameras um those deer are in their core home range and so um, on the study areas where we're working on, which are large tracts of um, state forest land, a uh, home range of a deer outside the ruts about a square mile. So both males and females out, you know, outside the rut basically have the same home range size. And, um, and, and in August, it's probably... Um, you know, for males, um, that's their core area. If you're seeing a deer in that area, that's their core home range. Um, and that goes into September. Um, and really, you know, things don't change for bucks until probably the third week in October, um, the fourth week of October, um, uh, the rut is starting to kick in, um, and by early November, that's when they're just full time, uh, in, uh, breeding mode. Um, and so on the study areas that we're working on, you know, up North, we're up in, uh, the big woods up in Potter County. Um, our central PA study areas are on Roth Rock and Bald Eagle State Forest, just south of State College. Um, they're large tracts of forested land. And those deer, those bucks, their home range that averages about a square mile in August is going to blow up to two, three, even four square miles. Um, and so, yeah, that's where... They're expending gobs of energy, and um, yeah, the the funny thing is, I looked at um, how fast do they walk, and they're <laughs> not walking very fast. Um, maybe half a mile an hour, 
But the thing is, they're basically doing that 24-7. And, um, you know, over the course of 30 days, over the course of the rut, those guys couldn't be walking 90 to more than 100 miles. That's crazy. Just 24-7, like you said. Now, here, here to kind of build upon that, I'm, I've you've heard of, you know, obviously the, the cold front or when rain, uh, like after rain deer get up and they might be blowing up your trail cameras or to be in the woods by the time that it start, you know, stops raining. What, I guess, kind of either things that you could maybe either debunk or, uh, agree with, you know, what are, I guess, some of those factors that lead into that deer movement or not deer movement that, that you've heard hunters talk about in, in the past? Yeah, so um, uh, let's see. Where do we start? Well, there's the moon. <laughs> um, where where are you on that one? Um, I'm on no effect. <laughs> okay. um, so so people have you know research wildlife researchers have addressed this issue along for a long time. I mean, going back to the '90s, and. Um, the bottom line is that some people found a pattern and others haven't. And it really, um, there really isn't any pattern. And I guess the way I come at it as a scientist is why would the moon influence their behavior? And I've never heard a good reason of why. Um, and the fact, you know, a lot of it, you know, that like, oh, with the moon, their breeding activity picks up. Well, we've had, I've, the Game Commission collected almost a data, a decade worth of uh, uh, birth dates on, um, on deer, on, you know, em- looking at embryos and date of, uh, date that females got pregnant and um, it hasn't changed it, it doesn't change from one year to the next and the moon if you look over you know the rut is during November and the full moon varies widely uh, you know across several years because the moon is out of sync slightly right it's on a slightly different cycle than the sun yep and so the full moon varies widely over the course of November. And basically November 13th is when is November 13th, half the females have been bred in Pennsylvania year in and year out. It does not vary. So, so I would say the moon, um, as far as I can tell, and anything I've looked at has no effect on deer behavior. Um, you know, the other thing is, the the problem is, we always want to know, how does the weather influence deer behavior during the hunting season? Because that's when it's really important to know how, how weather influences deer behavior. And the problem is, it's confounded by um, the fact that it's the breeding season. And with the breeding season, like I said, throw everything out the window, because the males are focused on one thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is some influence of weather, um, but from, 
personally, I can tell you that the weather influences me more than it influences deal. Um, because when I'm cold and wet, I cannot sit out there all day long and I have to go. Yep. But you're stuck out there all day long. So, and, and looking with our data, and I've had um, uh, students at Penn State take a look at our data and see if they can see how wind and rain influences their movements. And like one of my students said, yeah, I found a difference, but it's basically like walking from here to your bathroom. That's the difference. Right. Interesting. What about like when it comes to, you know, that you hear like, especially like with the October lull, and I think we've, a lot of people have, you know, realized that deer are still doing deer things during that time frame. But, you know, to kind of build upon that, I guess, I've heard, I've talked to other hunters on and off the podcast and it always seems like October is a weird, a weird uh, time of, of philosophy when it comes to hunters, right? Like we know when the rut's happening, like you said, the first end of October, that early November timeframe, we need to be in the woods because deer are, like you said, are basically moving 24 seven, but that October time, people are like, I don't hunt mornings or I only do this, or I only, I only do that. You know what I, I guess, you know, what, from your observations and maybe your uh, personal experience, you know, what, what kind of things about October should a hunter, I guess, I don't want to say be doing, but what, like, what are some things that might be able to help someone out in that, in that side of things? <laughs> well, um, uh, the short answer would be, I don't know. Yep. Um, the long answer is, I think the October lull is um, based on people looking at um, the archery harvest and when it occurs. And the bottom line is um, everyone is excited when the deers, when the season opens and they're all out there the first Saturday and maybe the first week. And so if you look at the data that the Game Commission collects on when deer are harvested, you see right off the bat a big harvest, and then it drops off, and then it doesn't pick up again until late in October and, and then into early November, and then the harvest you know, just goes up and up. And what you have to keep in mind is that those simple harvest statistics are confounded by hunter effort. So I think a lot of people go out early in October, a lot of hunters, a high percentage of them are hunting. And so you see more deer harvested and, and the hunting effort drops off until the rut kicks in in late October. And things are a lot more exciting, deer moving around. Um, so there may be a lull in the sense that um, in early October into mid-October, maybe maybe even the third week, deer are not really moving around a lot. And then it isn't till the end of that last week in October, and then you get into November. And then, like I said, November 13th is the peak. Half, half of females are pregnant by then. So 
half the females have been bred by the middle of November. Um, it's just, uh, it's a combination of hunter effort, um, deer movements, deer behavior that create this October lull. Got it. And then talk about, I guess, you know, the research that you're finding with like when it comes to these pressure deer, like where are these deer going to? I don't know how many times I've, I've talked to my dad over the last decade and, you know, certain times when, you know, especially during the rut, when we are either seeing deer and no shot opportunity has have come about, or one of us fills a tag. And then one of us is saying to each other, once rival rifle season rolls around, where the heck do these deer go? You know? And, and, uh, it's a, they're all, going crazy running on our side of the mountain and all of a sudden they're no longer there. It seems like they're ghosts. And so, yeah, you know, there's a bunch of different things going on. I mean, you know, like I said, um, you see these bucks in August and September and then they disappear. Well, that's because their home range went from a square mile to four square miles. So the odds of you even seeing them, decline dramatically just because of their movements. Um, I, you know, I've looked at a lot of the deer that we've radio collared and looked at their movements. And um, besides the fact that the breeding season kicks in during archery, I've never seen, I really can't identify any changes in movements due to the hunting season but that all changes with the rifle season because you know we have we have a couple hundred thousand people who archery hunt but in the rifle season which is what 12 10 12 days yeah um you're talking you know half a million or more people out there in the woods and that that right there completely changes their behavior. And with the, the re, again, all of my research that we've been doing over the past 10 years has been on large tracts of, um, uh, of forest. So, you know, tens of square miles of just contiguous forest. So you have to take that into account, but, those deer know um, they know before before the opening day that things are something's going on, and you know I don't I'm not I don't want to give deer a lot of credit in terms of they're not thinking ahead. Deer are simply responding to hunter activity, and the deer that have run to a spot that it turns out they're unlikely to, to be disturbed are the ones that don't get harvested. And I, I think it's more luck than, um, you know, they're not, <laughs> how should I, how do I say this? Um, you know, if you asked me or told me that, oh, hunting season's opening on Monday, um, what are you going to do? I'm going to think, okay, well, these are the things I could do. These deer are just responding to this activity, and some of them get lucky and just, I think, run to a spot where they're unlikely to get disturbed. 
And so we ended up, what we've learned is that on the state forest lands, whether it's down here in the Ridge and Valley or up in the big woods in Northern PA, um, they, by five o'clock in the morning, they run to this spot and they're bedded for four or five hours and they're not moving. And they've just figured it out. Now, yeah, so there's a lot more that we need to learn. Um, people ask me questions and I'm like, yeah, there's, there's, I just don't have the information to answer, you know, exactly how and why they do this. But I've just seen these deer repeatedly um, go to steep slope areas um, that are far from a road. And there's just, if you look at that spot, you know, it's like there's no way I can see on a deer mm-hmm. in that spot. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's a conundrum that I've, you know, pondered about for 20 plus years. And it's the GPS collars that we have now that have provided a little, a little bit of insight into how it happens that these bucks on public lands escape getting harvested. Right. And like you said, going to that steepest slope and, you know, are you finding also, you know, piggyback of that steep slope? Are they kind of going into like the thickest, nastiest stuff they could get in? Cause like you said, of trying not to be, you know, where, what's the least disturbance they could, they could really find. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing that I don't know. Uh, And I can't answer it because I don't have the data. So in order to answer that question, I would need a map of where the thick, nasty stuff occurs. Mm -hmm. And, and we just don't have that type of information. Gotcha. Um, there is some new technology coming out. It's called LIDAR. Um, uh, some of your listeners may have heard of it. Um, they've been able to map ancient roads in, in the Mayan civilization with it. Um, in Pennsylvania, you can find, uh, like in this part of Pennsylvania, you can find the old... Um, charcoal horse and stuff yep. back in the 1800s and early 1900s. So with that LIDAR, um, as that technology gets better, we'll be able to say, oh, is the understory like clear? Can you just see everywhere or is it really thick? And if I had that information, then I could answer that question that you just asked, but I don't have the data yet. Wonderful. Well, to kind of, for for right now, I have one more regarding movement, and I guess you know till till we move on again. But what is what are some of the key things that you're noticing the difference between you know mature buck movement versus that younger buck movement, and and maybe you have a, a categorized them already even too by by an age, like a three year old buck is doing this compared to say a five year old and a half like five and a half year old buck or whatever. Is there any Anything along those lines that that uh, you've been able to see as far as like their the difference between their movement slash behavior? Um, well, first uh, a caveat is that in our current study, we we don't catch um, we are we capture deer um, of all ages, but we are catching deer in January through April, early April. And 
if that deer is eight months old, which means it was born the previous June, um, and it would be one and a half years old in the fall, you know, which means the first year it had antlers, that, that eight-month-old deer that we catch does not get a radio collar. Okay. But if that deer that we catch is a year, you know, like a year and eight months, um, then we would put a collar. So then the first hunting season that we follow it, it's two and a half. So we're monitoring radio collaring during the hunting season. Those deer are two and a half, three and a half, four and a half, you know, five and a half and up. Um, and I can say from all I can say is that I have not seen a difference among any of those deer. That's fascinating. So, um, deer, when deer are born, you know, they have the same home range as their mother. And for males, when they, um, they may either disperse either in the spring when their mother gives birth or it may be in the fall. So they'll 80%, 70 to 80% of males when they're a year to a year and four months old will um, disperse from their home range from where they were born. And they make that movement very quick. They, they disperse. Well, if it's contiguous forest, they're not going to go that far, maybe four or five miles. And they're going to make that movement within 24 hours. And then where they stop, that's their home range basically for the rest of their life. Now, some of those deer may make some different movements, but, you know, 99% of them, that's their home range as an adult. Um, so we really don't see a lot of changes. I mean, we've followed some bucks for a couple of years and basically one year looks the same as the next. Wow. That's really neat. That's fascinating to to know. So like when you talk about like these core areas in their home range and I, I mean, when you talk about the pressure too, and I mean, over the last couple of years, you've seen it become a popular tactic of the whole bump and dump thing. Um, you know, have, have you seen anything regarding that? Like even on, on your own hunting experience and of how that kind of still, you know, holds true of these deer still know like, Hey, I, I called this place home the last couple of years. I'm just going to be coming back. In, into this, my area, you know, either tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I can sit at my computer and look at this deer's movements and, you know, and say, yeah, this is his core range and this is what happens during the rut. But to go out on the ground and actually, I don't think, I mean, I haven't tested this. <laughs> I'd love to, but I haven't <laughs> tested this. But I would love to give someone, you know, all the information we had about a deer and say, okay, now you know where his core is. Now you know where he goes during the rut. Go out hunting out there and see if you can find him. I I just don't think you can do it. Um, 
it's you you can look at you know the data that we collect with these collared deer you can see some patterns but i don't i i haven't figured out a way of how could you use that information to actually walk out on the landscape and increase your odds other than you know saying that well you you were out there in august and september and you saw this guy if that's where you saw him in august and september and early october then that's where i'd hunt him in november because your odds are going to be a lot lower of encountering him but that's your best chance of finding him that's I have no, I have no better advice than that. I'm yeah. sorry. No, that's good. So like you brought up a good point because over the last couple of years, even myself, I've been trying to do something and I've seen other hunters do it. I know Mark Canyon when on his podcast for man, even f- before I started my antler up podcast, you know, three and a half years ago, I always used to hear him create these spreadsheets and everything like that. So when it comes to using historical data, kind of like what you just talked about, what is there really anything that we should focus in on or, you know, and and kind of go from there? Like, you know, I've talked to people that they'll even go through and look at historical weather and, and write that down and, you know, just use like everything they can to their knowledge. But, you know, is that, are hunters wasting their time or is, you know, or, or, uh, or is there more specific things that us hunters can do to really focus on when we want to look at historical data? Yeah. Um, hmm. well, I, I mean, I guess one thing I would say is that, you know, game cameras are an awesome technology that if you had enough time and gumption and interest to, you know, put multiple cameras out and see, you know, if you can see, you know, where you're more likely to see a deer than, you know, a given deer, um, then you could increase your odds by hunting those areas, even during the rut, because... You know, they're going all over creation, but they're still going to be coming back to that core area. Um, the other thing would be to look at topography. Um, and the other thing to think about is there are things, so all sorts of animals um, use landscape features to kind of define their home range. Um from fish to birds, um, you know, you, you know, if you pay attention to the robins around your house, the males are going to have territories, and I can guarantee you there's a male on one side of your house and there's a male on the other. So your house is kind of a boundary. Um, and the same thing happens with deer. And so roads and streams and... Um, other large features, they may not, um, they don't prevent a deer. A deer can certainly cross them. I mean, there's a drainage coming down a hillside and it's, you know, two feet wide. They can walk across that. But those types of features tend to 
define the boundaries of a home range. And so, you know, between having some game camera photos and looking at topography and making guesses about, um, you know, what roads or streams or other features they're less likely to cross. I mean, I've even seen um, some of our deer power lines, um, you know, pipelines or power lines will define the edge of a home range. Um, so those types of things might help you, you know, identify where the core area is more likely to be. Um, but again, I, I've kind of cheated because I've got all these deer that I, you know, have been looking at. Um, but when you actually walk out on the landscape, um, yeah, that's a whole other ball, ball yeah. game. Spartan and Forge stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting to deliver truly intuitive and science-based products that saves the hunter time spent scouting, planning, and executing their hunts. You have deer prediction, journaling, and the best maps on any hunting app platform there is. Use code ANTLERUP to save 20% off your Spartan Forge membership at spartanforge.ai. Yeah. Well, because that's what's fascinating, because as you're speaking, I'm thinking of one particular buck that has been a pain in my butt, a thorn in my butt for the last couple of years. And routinely at the end of October, I'll get him on camera. And my dad and I have yet to get an image of him in velvet, not one time. And, you know, so it's always by, you know, at the end of the year, at the end of January, we'll get a, maybe a photo of him and we're like, okay, he made it this far. And then it's a crapshoot until the end of October. It's like, is he still alive? Um, and I mean, we have a, a good amount of cameras all out there. And I mean, our historical data is, you know, be in the area around certain times and hopefully the encounter happens, but it's been so he's, he's just been so difficult to uh, actually hunt just because of he's, you know, what, right when we would think we were, were in the area, he's, you know, on a whole, the other side that we have a camera, basically it, it, he's just, he's, he's been a difficult buck to, to try to get after. Yeah. Yeah, the only good news I can say is that um, if he survives the hunting season, there's at least a 90% or better chance that he'll be there for the next hunting season. I've heard you say that. And when I heard you, uh, when I was re-listening to a podcast that you you, you were on and you mentioned that statistic, uh, I got kind of really excited again all of a sudden because I'm like, there's still that good percentage chance he made it. And oh my gosh, if he did, I, I can't imagine what he's going to look like this year. Big old mountain, yeah. big old mountain buck in Northeast PA. So hor- horrible soil. So I don't know how the heck he's getting as big as he is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, age is a is you know a really big factor. But look at that. Like we kind of wrapped up the whole deer movement. We potentially might do like a quick listener, you know, easy question for you to answer later. But another question that I had, it kind of going back to the October situation, and we were saying in earlier to look at uh, for our acorn uh, drop and, and everything. And when we look at, at that in September, you know, what I had someone ask me to ask, like the plants that deer prefer during like the time of year, like what, what plants are they seeking out first? Like as far as the browsing, you know, is there really anything along the lines that you could potentially answer along this? 
Um, in terms of the hunting season, yeah. no. No, okay. Um, uh, nutrition is really important, obviously, for females. And, and of course, that's going to be spring. Um, and that's the things that green up, especially those um, uh, small flowers and things. Like a lot of the lilies... The trilliums, um, Indian cucumber, Canada Mayflower. I mean, for for females in the spring, ninety percent of their diet might be these flowers on our forest floors. Um, and then, of course, summer. There's gobs of food in the summer. Everything is green. There's plenty to eat. Um, males are going to. Um, uh, you know, bulk up before the rut. Um, but, you know, that's before the hunting season opens, so that doesn't really help you. The only thing I could say is mast, um, potentially, and only if it's a spotty, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if it's kind of a poor mast year, but you have certain areas where there's a bunch of oaks that have mast, or maybe the white oaks have are producing acorns, but the red oaks aren't, or vice versa, then that might help you um, focus where you want to hunt. Um, but other than that, um, you know, I can't really see in Pennsylvania how food um, would influence that behavior. You know, unless you're in an area, again, I'm talking about the big woods. Yep. Um, if you're in an area with ag and stuff that, that changes everything. Yeah. So here's, here's another kind of to going off of a little bit of everything that we've talked about. And this was something that I wanted to ask you, you know, throughout your, your 10 years on this research. And then prior to that, go, dating all the way back to 2000, you know, what could you think of a deer that really just puzzled you? Like the, as far as movement behavior, just when you're like, why the heck? Like that is an outlier. Um, yeah, I've got two deer, <laughs> actually, um, they were both females and, um, uh, we did genetics. Of course, all the deer we catch, we do genetics on them and they're unrelated. Their home ranges were two or three miles apart and they both, made multiple movements to the north to the exact same spot. Hmm. And I have no idea why. Other than I suspect there may have been maybe a camp putting out food or something. But how on earth, you know, one of these females actually moved like five or six miles, like walked in like a straight line and then went back. Um, I, I can't explain it. Huh. That's interesting. What about? I mean, I've got plenty of others. Um, some I can explain. Some I can't. But that right there, why two females, unrelated? So you could think like, oh, if it's a mother daughter, um, there's some learned behavior, and they're both going back to this spot. But these are um, completely unrelated females uh, making 
long distance movements outside their normal home range to the same spot. How about a buck story? Um, yeah, so we have a buck down in, uh, or had, he's no longer with us or actually he might, no, I'm sure he's dead by now, but, um, the caller failed. So, um, we don't know what happened to him, but multiple years, um, he would actually shift, completely shift his home range during the rut. So when the rut kicked in, he moved about two or three miles to the northwest and would hang out there. And then either right before or after the hunting season would move back and spend the rest of the year in this in the in this other location Hmm. which is you know most like i said most deer they have a core area and during the run it expands you know two three four times in size Mm -hmm. this guy just picked up and left and went to a different place interesting so when when you see (laughs) when you see a buck on your game camera all fall and then the rut comes and he disappears um, it could be a guy like that. He just goes on to a whole different area. Mm-hmm. So speaking of bucks and another topic, and I, I just want to know if you've done any research or if it's even involved in it, you know, I, I think I've heard you just faintly talk a little bit about it. You know, when it comes to like buck beddings or buck bedding, um, will, will buck have, a crap ton of beds? Will he use certain beds? You know, is there anything that you've uh, researched or take notice or anything while you've been in the field? Um, Yeah, I I guess the only thing I can say is that um, I don't have any prediction um i've i've looked at um buck movements to see if you could you know if you set up in a certain place could you waylay this guy you know because he's always going to walk by there yeah and my conclusion was no um there was another buck and we did a blog post on it that showed where he rested um, during the day, during the rifle season. And sometimes it was, it appeared to be like probably 50 feet off a, uh, off a, um, state forest road. Um, and you can see these different places that, you know, he spent several hours at a time, not really moving, but there was no pattern to it that I could discern. Right. What would you say, how is our current state of uh, whitetail, you know, herd health here in Pennsylvania compared to the years past? Well, um, you know, like I said, Pennsylvania's in the sweet spot. Um, some of our management units, you know, a, a real test of the health of a herd would be the percent of fawns that get pregnant. North of I-80, hardly any and hardly any have gotten pregnant for 
decades. Um, but in some of the southern parts of the state, almost 50% of fawns can get pregnant. So to me, that's a real measure of the health of the herd. Um, it's probably one of the best measures would be the percent of fawns. That means that that fawn was born, was able to gain enough weight that she would become reproductively active during her first fall breeding season. And like I said, in some of our Southern management units, it's as high as 30 or 50% of fawns. Um, and so on the whole, the health of Pennsylvania's herd hasn't really changed a whole lot, you know, in over the long term. Um, I would say the one thing that concerns me is chronic wasting disease. Um, there's been research, you know, out west that suggests that chronic wasting disease um, reduces survival of adult females, um, and adult females are the most important segment of the population that determines. Um, you know, the potential for population growth. Um, it is not fawn survival, it's survival of adult females. And so out west, um, they've, there's some research that suggests that chronic wasting disease can have an impact. I don't think we know for the eastern U.S., you know, are, are the productivity of white-tailed deer in the eastern U.S. is way different than it is in Wyoming. Um, so I don't, uh, you know, if, if you ask me, I'm not sure chronic wasting disease will have a huge impact on, on the ability of the population to reproduce and produce more deer. Um, but it's a serious concern. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's my, that, that's my only unknown and concern and uncertainty. Um, I don't think white-tailed deer are going to go extinct in Pennsylvania because of chronic wasting disease, but we could end up with populations with um, huge infection rates and um, potentially lower, lower reproduction. Um, but so that's, that's the, best I can tell you right now. Yeah. And I know like with Pennsylvania being a rich tradition of, of a hunting heritage, uh, you know, I've, I grew up hunting on a private piece where only youth hunters are allowed to, to hunt does or harvest does. You know, I guess talk briefly or, or, or however much long you'd like on, you know, the importance of that buck to doe ra ratio, like why is it important to keep doe numbers down relative to the, to the buck ratio? Well, it's like if you were, um, if you're a farmer and have cows on a pasture, you can only have so many cows. And it's the same thing with deer, right? The, there's only so much food out there for them. So it's only going to support so many deer. Um, you know, farmers, ranchers know that they can actually reduce the number of cattle on their pasture and make more money because the cattle that are out there are in better condition. And it's the same thing with white-tailed deer. And the only way you can manage a white-tailed deer population is to harvest antlerless deer. 
And so, um, uh, you know, management of whitetail deer is basically management of the female side of the population. Right. And hunters harvesting female deer is critical to maintaining a healthy deer population in the long term. Do you have any, I, I've heard people say, I, I won't shoot a doe past, you know, like you, the, the, like you said earlier of, of when the rut kind of starts, begins that end of October, if she's made it this far, I'm, I'm, I'm letting her go and I'm only going to harvest my buck tag. Like is what's the kind of, you know, what would you say, you know, is it all right? Like I've killed plenty of doe during rifle season. Um, you know, is that still like, what, what, what's your philosophy on that? Well, um, over 90% of our adult females, so they're a year and a half or older, are um, get pregnant. Um, so the only way, and, and like I said, the most important segment of the population is adult females. So the only way you're going, if you need numbers to go up, you harvest fewer females. If you need numbers to go down, you harvest more. I mean, that's critical. And so if hunters are going to be a tool um, for wildlife management to manage a deer population, and basically as that tool, um, they are telling the general public, hey, we are part of the stewardship of not only the deer population, but the habitat, you know, our forest that we live in, um, it's critical that um, that hunters engage in harvesting antlerless deer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the the authority for managing those deer and identifying how many deer need to be harvested has been given to the Pennsylvania Game Commission, and that's why they, you know, monitor the condition of our forests. They monitor the condition of the deer population, whether that's numbers or reproductive rates or that sort of thing. And so they're the ones that are, you know, setting guidelines and making recommendations for the number of deer that need to be harvested. Right. Um, and like the allotment of, of, of antlerless doe tags and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. That, that is the mechanism. The, you know, the antlerless harvest is the mechanism by which we, uh, can make populations go up or down. Understood. So kind of to, to wrap things up, I want to ask you like, what is a misunderstood topic or strategy that like you kind of just in the back of your mind, always just chuckle or shake your head at it and put your hand over your face when you hear it. Um, you mean a hunting strategy? Yeah. Yeah. or, Or just anything related to, to deer or a hunting strategy, anything along those lines. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you caught me off guard here. Um, <laughs> I got, I got one. Okay, so, go for it. Um, so actually, uh, I had a student back in oh, around 2007. We were up on, uh, doing research up on the Sproul State Forest. Route 144 goes from like I-80 snowshoe up to Renova. Yep. And, um, and that's all state forest land up there. 
and you're up on the plateau. So the roads are all along the upper part of the plateau, and then you've got these drainages that go down to the um, Susquehanna River. And, um, you know, the conventional wisdom is that uh, that they're, the deer on public lands, there's fewer deer because everyone can hunt them and the harvest rates are higher. And actually, it's that conventional wisdom is completely wrong. It's actually the opposite. Um, harvest rates on public lands, large tracts of public lands, are actually lower than on private lands. And a lot of that has to do with access. And anyway, when, what my student looked at was he looked at, we had um, deer that were radio collared, and he looked at where their home range was located and relative to the nearest road. And then he also looked at hunter density. So we did aerial surveys and actually looked at hunter density and how hunter density varied from the road. And he actually found that there's a sweet spot. So if you're right next to the road, your odds of harvesting a deer um, are actually uh, low because the deer leave, avoid the roads. When you get too far from the road, there's no hunters to move the deer around. And there's a sweet spot, depending on elevation and, or depending on distance to road and slope, there's a sweet spot where your chances of harvesting a deer actually are, are highest. Wonderful. And, um, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the most interesting things we've ever discovered about hunting, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Yep, You've it got, does. Right next to the road, you're going to have higher density of hunters, more interference among hunters, more activity deer are going to leave. And if you get too far from a road, deer don't need to move because there's no one moving around. But if you can get that to that sweet spot, which is, you know, half a mile to a third to a half a mile from a road, um, you've got just enough hunters to move the deer around and you actually are going to have better success there. Well, you, you said a word there that I, I wrote down that I, you know, kind of, I don't know how it blew through my mind, but you said elevation and, you know, like a lot of the studies, you know, where with both places of the studies, I would say I relate it to where both areas that I hunt um, and the big woods and everything along those lines, you know, have you noticed like as far as an elevation goes where that uptick in deer movement happens? I don't think it's elevation as much as slope. Okay. And elevation relative to other places. Um, so it depends where the roads are. Um, um, you know, deer, deer are going to avoid, you know, the road for the most part. Um, yeah, it's, it's all context dependent. Like, you know, I know places, I can picture a place where 
the roads kind of go around uh, lower parts around the streams and stuff. And then there's hills. Yeah, it's it's all about access. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's easy access, um, there's going to be more hunters, and that means your odds of harvesting deer are going to be less. Nice. I like it. I, I greatly appreciate you coming on and answering my questions, answering some of our listeners' questions, and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to, to, to build upon this. Sure. Yep. Well, th- yep. Dr. Diefenbach, where, where could people find your, find this, uh, you know, the study that you're do- doing, the deer forest study, the blog, um, and follow along with, with everything that you're doing? Yeah, it's really simple. We have a website. Um, it's deer.psu.edu. And if you go there, you'll see the blog, you'll see um, some information about the research, you'll see all of the uh, research publications that we've uh, uh, produced from this work over the past 10 years. And if you go to the blog, there's a link where you can provide your email and you'll get an email every time we have a new blog post. Excellent. One last question. If you are hunting two days of the year only, what two days are you hunting? <laughs> um, sunny and warm. <laughs> No specific dates. Well, my favorite season is the um, early muscle loader. Oh, okay. That it's ought- just, I mean, it's just beautiful. I mean, uh, the weather's nice. Um, there's so, I mean, the there's migrating birds. The the leaves are changing color. Um, the deer are starting to get active. Uh, there's just so many things you see um, that early muzzleloader season. It's just so much fun. It's a, it's a hard time for, for a, a public land bow hunter, I'll tell you that at times. Yeah, well, that's why I use a muzzleloader. <laughs> you're like, you're, you're, you're the dumb one, that's why. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate it so much, Dwayne, and, and I look forward to staying in contact, looking forward to uh, uh, some future conversations, and I'm – excited to continue to follow along with your with your deer study uh thank you again everybody for all your continued support we'll see you next week until next time antler up